Did you know that the Wright brothers used ExxonMobil oil fuel and lubricants for their historic first flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina? Speaking of famous air travel, did you know that both Charles Lindbergh and Amelia Earhart used mobile oil in their historic plane flights across the Atlantic? Can you guess why ExxonMobil loves tigers so much that they contribute a million dollars every year to help conserve Asia's remaining wild tigers? Stay tuned to hear about a ton of fascinating things about ExxonMobil, like that they have paid a consecutively increasing dividend for 37 years, making it one of only 57 prestigious companies in the world to be a dividend aristocrat. What's up everybody? Jen, ex-dividend investor here. Today in my 12th stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of ExxonMobil, my 14th largest dividend stock by portfolio value. That means that after this, I only have 13 to go until my full dividend investing portfolio is revealed. Keep watching to see screenshots of the Exxon dividend checks I recently received. And I have a favor to ask of you. Please share this video on MySpace or that other social media place that people use on the interweb, or share it with that hot gas station attendant you can't stop at because you're in a Tesla. Or tweet this out to Beyonce. I mean, like I say to all the single ladies out there, if you like it then you should have put a drip on it. And let's see if we can get to 100 likes on this video. If we can, there's a chance that someone will win a million dollars. It's a 0% chance, but that's something. I mean, I'm no math major, but I know you guys can help me bang it, slam it, and throw your hands up to that like button. Look, I can see your halo. You're my saving grace for loving that like button. Feel free to check out the timestamps in the description below if you want to jump straight to my portfolio. Though if you listen to this whole video, I'd really appreciate it as then I have a chance that my YouTube ad revenue will pay for a venti water at Starbucks. I want to do a shout out to Independent Investor. He has been super supportive to me and to the whole investing community and is an incredible value to investors out there and is the type of person that you'd be lucky to be friends with in the real world. Now a goal that Independent Investor has is to influence people to realize that they should be investing and that they can manifest their futures by taking charge of their own investing decisions, something which I believe in as well. So thank you, independent investor. So Ryan, can you tell us a little something about your background? I'm a military member and a military investor myself. Awesome. So what is the single most important message that you guys talk about on your channel? The single most important message that we talk about is how to become a self-managed investor. That is an important message to share. The internet has really changed the game and gives us independent investors the tools we need to invest wisely. When I was a kid, my dad used to say you've got to work hard to make money, but he never told me what I should do after I earned it. What do you guys think over on your channel? Guys, we believe that a dollar preserved is just as important as a dollar earned within your investment accounts. Now that is a super good point. We work so hard to make money, shouldn't we work just as hard to maintain and grow our money through investing? So where can someone like me go to learn about investing? Should I go talk to my local bank about this? Or should I go to one of those big investing institutions and ask them? The banks are not going to talk about this. And the financial institutions aren't going to talk about it either. Hmm, why won't they? Because it doesn't benefit them. Oh, okay. So I've watched your channel and one of the things I've learned is that from a tax avoidance perspective, that a Roth IRA is better than a traditional IRA and both are better than a normal taxable brokerage account. But what if I'm in the military? Is your channel going to teach me about what I can do with my TSP or do you only talk about IRAs? I also talk to military members and military families with regard to how to go about investing in the thrift savings plan. Okay, Ryan, what should someone do if they're sitting at home and want to learn more about how to invest or other tax avoidance strategies or anything like that? If you're interested in any of these topics, tune into the Independent Investor channel and I'll show you how. That's awesome. I hope everyone does that. You know, I'm a big fan of yours, Ryan. You guys have been really good to me and I want to do whatever I can to return the kindness you've shown me. Thank you for your support. Okay, let's give him a round of applause, everybody. So there's some comments from some folks that said they liked the ambient jazz music I play in my videos and others who didn't like it. So if you're interested, I'm running a poll on this video you can click on in the upper right corner and vote if you like the jazz music or if you'd rather have no music. As always, 
This video is not a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold. I'm just sharing my thoughts as someone who isn't a professional licensed investor. Okay, time for some deep analysis. ExxonMobil, ticker XOM, is a $280 billion revenue, $295 billion market cap American multinational oil and gas company that has 71,000 employees and was a descendant of John D. Rockefeller Standard Oil, which itself was formed in 1870. ExxonMobil has 37 refineries and operates in 21 countries with a combined refining capacity of 6.3 million barrels a day, making it the largest refiner in the world. They are the largest non-government owned company in the energy industry and they produce about 3% of the world's oil and about 2% of the world's energy. It is usually in the top 10 largest companies in the world for either revenue and or market cap. It is also one of the largest of the world's big oil companies. They have around 100,000 suppliers, and so I would imagine that the entire oil ecosystem has millions of jobs it provides across the world when you look at their supply chain and such. The top institutional shareholder of Exxon is the Vanguard Group, holding around 348 million shares, which is 8.2% of the shares outstanding, worth almost $27 billion. That is a lot, my friends. You almost invariably own a piece of Exxon if you have a company 401k or a pension plan because it is held in most of the big funds. The largest individual shareholder of ExxonMobil I found was Michael Dolan, a former senior vice president who owns about 13.2 million shares of the company. That is a cool $910 million worth of stock. That also means that his shares are passively making him about $45 million a year. Bravo, Mr. Dillon, bravo. I bet he is really happy that he achieved fire. Or should I say he's achieved inferno. And then for reference, we see that I hold 823.8 shares of Exxon that drip $2,867 a year. Not much in comparison to Mr. Dolan, but like I always say, it doesn't matter how big your portfolio is, it only matters that you're investing. Okay, let's look into their key competitors. I'm only including publicly run companies, not state run. So I won't be including Saudi Aramco or Chinese oil companies amongst others. So their main competitors are BP at 131 billion market cap, Chevron Corporation at 221 billion, Royal Dutch Shell at 232 billion, Total at 141 billion, and Eni at 112 billion, and ConocoPhillips at 58 billion. Since I already did a rundown on Chevron, I'll use their other largest competitor and another oil dividend investor favorite, Royal Dutch Shell, commonly known as Shell, as the competitor we'll compare and contrast Exxon against. They are a Dutch-British oil and gas company headquartered in the Netherlands and incorporated in the United Kingdom. Now, one of the interesting things about Royal Dutch Shell is that there are two classes of shares, A and B. They are sometimes listed as dot .A and dot .B, or dash .A and dash .B, so RDS dot .A and RDS dot .B. The shares carry identical economic rights, but their cash dividends come with different tax implications. The A shares have a Dutch source for tax purposes and are subject to Dutch dividend withholding tax of 15%, whereas the B shares have a UK source for tax purposes and are not subject to any withholding tax. Also, cash dividends on the A shares are paid by default in euros. Cash dividends on the B shares are paid by default in pounds sterling. Anyways, don't take my word for that. Go research it if you're interested in investing. There are stories about investors over the years buying the wrong share class by accident. I'll be using Shell shares for this analysis. Exxon is one of the big oil super majors. Big oil is a name used to describe the world's six or seven largest publicly traded oil and gas companies, also known as super majors. I went over the oil industry in detail in my Chevron video, so I'll just cover the basics of Exxon's core business segments. Number one is upstream, number two is downstream, and number three is chemical. So they are one of the largest and most diverse upstream companies in the world, operating in 41 countries and are active in all aspects of upstream, which is about exploring, developing, producing, and marketing hydrocarbon resources around the world. They are also one of the world's largest integrated refiners and marketers of fuels and lubricants as part of downstream. The refineries are in 25 countries and they are a leading manufacturer of petroleum products. Finally, they're one of the most profitable chemical companies in the world and operate in 16 countries. I found this info in their 10K. It highlights how far into various supply chains around the world Exxon operates 
in ways you might never envision. Let's just look at one example, which is the car. Sure, most people know that Exxon is affiliated with gas for your car. But let's look at things you might not think of. How about the ductwork on your car? What about the seal that is used to put your windshield on? How about the fuel tank itself? How about the grill of your car or the bumper? How about the wheel well flares or the liners? My point is that their products are used in ways you probably were never aware of across a slew of industries from packaging to agriculture. I wanted to share some info from Exxon's 10K about oil, gas, supply, and demand. So this shows you that they feel that oil and gas demand is increasing over time. And this shows a trend up and through 2040 and how supply would decline relatively quickly if more wasn't found. So while there are trends such as increased usage of electric vehicles and renewables, there probably will be continued increased needs for lubricants, jet fuels, heating fuels, etc. for decades to come. It's not just Exxon that sees oil demand growing. The International Energy Agency predictions also show similar trends continuing for decades. The International Energy Agency is a Paris-based intergovernmental organization, and this shows their estimates for the demand for oil and natural gas for the next 20 years, and it's growing. So why would oil usage be increasing? For five main reasons. Number one, population growth. Number two, growth in GDP and improved worldwide living standards. Number three, middle-class demand for energy consumption is increasing. Number four, more demand from commercial transportation and aviation. And number five, increased industrial demands. So while certain aspects of demand for oil or oil byproducts are decreasing, when taken in aggregate, things look positive to me. Let's check out how they compare on Fortune's list. Since Shell isn't a U.S. company, we won't look for it on the Fortune 500. Instead, let's check out Fortune's Global 500. Here we find Exxon is ranked 8th in the world in annual revenues and number 2 for all U.S. companies, and Shell is ranked 3rd in the world as part of the Netherlands. So both Shell and ExxonMobil are in the top 10 companies in the world for revenues, with Shell being larger. Neither Exxon or Shell made Fortune's list of top 100 brands in the world. I thought that people would be interested in seeing what the top 10 companies in the world to work for were, according to Fortune's extensive surveys. So we see that number one is Salesforce, number two is Hilton, number three is Mars, number four is Intuit, number five is the Adeco Group, number six is DHL, number seven is Mercado Libre, number eight is Cisco, number nine is Daimler Financial Services, and number 10 is the SAS Institute. I honestly was surprised when I saw this list. I just assumed that companies like Google and Facebook would be in the top 10, but nope. Okay, now let's hear Exxon's history. To understand ExxonMobil's history, I want to go back to the man who started it all, and that is John D. Rockefeller. John Davidson Rockefeller was the son of a traveling salesman and was born in 1839 in Richford, New York. He was entrepreneurial at a young age and earned money by selling candy, raising turkeys, and doing various jobs for his neighbors. His family moved to Cleveland when he turned 14, and at 16 he worked as an office clerk. In 1959, at age 20, he and a partner established their own commission firm, the same year America's first oil well was drilled in Pennsylvania. Four years later, Rockefeller and some partners decided to invest in a Cleveland refinery. At age 26, Rockefeller borrowed money in order to buy out some of his partners and take control of the refinery, which had become the biggest one in Cleveland. In 1870, at age 31, he formed the Standard Oil Company of Ohio, along with some partners. He utilized the strategy of buying other refineries as well as created companies to distribute and market his products around the world. These various companies were combined into the Standard Oil Trust, which controlled about 90% of the nation's refineries and pipelines. He was truly vertically integrated in the sense that his companies did everything, from building their own oil barrels to hiring scientists to figure out new uses for petroleum byproducts. He became one of the wealthiest men in the world and was accused of bribing men to spy on his competitors and ultimately crushing his competition. He was also well known for being a philanthropist and donated more than a half a billion dollars to a variety of causes, including funding the creation of University of Chicago. Rockefeller became so powerful that in 1911, after many years of litigation of being a monopoly, his main companies was broken up into 33 smaller companies, including Standard Oil of New Jersey, aka Jersey Standard, Sokony Oil, and Vacuum Oil, amongst others. Jersey Standard marketed its products under the brand Esso, 
which is the phonetic pronunciation of the initials S and O in Standard Oil. Jersey Standard became Exxon Corporation in 1972 and in 1999 joined with Mobile Oil Corporation, formerly Sokine Vacuum Oil, to form Exxon Mobile Corporation. Oh, and if you're wondering why Exxon loves their tiger so much, it has to do with the mascot of Esso, which was a tiger. The story goes that a Madison Avenue advertising legend, Sandy Sulcher, came up with the Put a Tiger in Your Tank campaign because he felt that drivers wanted both power and play while driving, and a tiger was an easy-to-remember symbol to communicate those feelings. So Sandy pitched the idea to the Exxon execs and ended the presentation by pulling back a curtain in the meeting room to reveal a live tiger barred from the zoo. That campaign went on to be one of the most successful in advertising history. Exxon feels such an affinity with tigers that they contribute a million dollars every year to help conserve Asia's remaining wild tigers. Okay, let's look into some of their current business strategies. I think it is useful to look at how they are delivering on what they said they would deliver to act as an input into our belief of their ability to deliver on their strategies. We see from this slide from an investor presentation that their upstream commitments in Guyana and the Permian Basin are all delivering nicely. The same is true for downstream, where already three facilities are online with three more in the pipeline, and Exxon is one of the best at project execution in the oil industry. They are also great when it comes to return on invested capital. And in the chemical segment, they committed to 30% growth by 2025 and saw 6% in 2018, and they're also on track with a number of new facilities they are growing. So I identified four key strategies that Exxon is following. Number one, they're strengthening their upstream portfolio, specifically in the Permian, Guyana, Brazil, Mozambique, and Papua New Guinea, which they believe will contribute 50% of upstream earnings by 2025. More specifically, they're doing things like deep water exploration near Guyana and growing the oil production in the Permian. Number two, they're upgrading their downstream production and leading in chemical growth, where they see earnings potential doubling by 2025 with continued strong return on capital employee performance, earnings growth with investments underpinned by their unique competitive advantages, which include number one, proprietary catalyst and process technology, number two, a global integrated footprint with established presence in key markets, and number three, a higher value product portfolio, amongst others. And the third key strategy they're following is reducing their environmental impacts. And finally, number four, they're investing with discipline. Part of what Exxon is doing to enable growth is to boost their capital expenses through 2025, which will help them increase production by about 25% by 2025. They expect to grow production in the Permian Basin up to 1 million barrels per day by 2024 and 750,000 per day in Guyana by 2025. Exxon has a great exploration success rate in Guyana and has been able to double its estimated reserves from 3 billion to 6 billion barrels. They are also divesting themselves of non-core assets with a goal of trimming about 15 billion. So Exxon is doubling down on their core competencies. The question you may need to consider is if what they are doing makes sense to you as you look forward. Should they double down on their money makers or should they drive hard into alternative energy sources? Something to think about. I found this graph on Statista and it can help paint a picture of how Exxon is strategically investing. We can see that their natural gas reserves have been on a decline but that slope is improving. Their liquid reserves are steadily increasing and oil equivalents are trending sideways. So no signs of slowing down really on any front other than natural gas, which looks like they are starting to address. Now, innovation is core to Exxon's DNA. They have thousands of patents and have pioneered many different products and technologies. Things like synthetic rubber tires. Did you know that lithium batteries were proposed by British chemist Stanley Whittingham while working for Exxon in the 1970s? How many of you Tesla drivers knew that an Exxon scientist helped make lithium batteries a possibility? Whittingham actually just won a Nobel Prize in Chemistry this year, 2019, for his fine work on lithium batteries. One of the things I've learned to do has been to temper my enthusiasm or criticism for companies based on a headline. A lot of big companies have done things I don't like and they've also done a ton of positive things, which usually don't get any good press. Citizen of the Year did a great video about how sin stocks are unstoppable, and he presents a different perspective on companies that is worth watching. Nothing out there is all bad or all good, other than one of my favorite subscriber partners. Hey, All Good. All Good's the best. She's super supportive, engaged. 
she comments and interacts with people. I really appreciate it. Okay, now let's jump into the fun financials. There are four key financial areas I like to understand when I'm analyzing a business. Number one is the company growing. Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? And number four, how's their profitability? Let's start with number one. Now there are six main things I like to review when answering a question, is a company growing? Number one is revenue growing. Number two are earnings growing. Number three is equity growing. Number four is cash flow growing. Number five is the dividend growing. And number six is the stock price growing. So let's start with number one of six. Let's look at the revenue growth history for both Exxon and Shell on macrotrends.net, Guru Focus, Yahoo Finance, and Zacks. So we see that for Exxon's revenue in 2016, they had 208 billion in revenue, which was 17% less than 2015. In 2017, they had 244 billion of revenue, which was 17% greater than 2016. And in 2018, they had 290 billion in revenue, which was 19% greater than 2017. Their 2020 forward estimate was for 278 billion, which is 4% less than 2018. Looking at Shell's revenue, in 2016, they had 240 billion, which was 12% less than 2015. In 2017, they had 312 billion in revenue, which was 30% greater than 2016. In 2018, they had 397 billion in revenue, which was 27% greater than 2017. And their 2020 estimates are for 331 billion in revenue, which is 16% less than 2018. So from this, we can see similar trends of performance for Exxon and Shell, which is indicative of the oil industry at large. Down in 2016, rising a bit into some headwinds. It's helpful to understand that Exxon is truly a global company. So investing in them is a way to get that broad geographic diversification that you might want while still being an American company. Here we see global net production by region and see that the Americas and Asia and the Middle East are their primary regions of production with a mix across Europe, Africa, and Australia, Oceania. 38% of their oil and gas production is in the Americas, so a very healthy distribution. Let's better understand Exxon's revenue by commodity type. We see that in the last three years they've been picking up steam and liquids and gas, but they were declining until then. I was also interested in seeing how pure sales of oil looked over time. While we do see a trend down, we see that the last three years have stabilized. I was also interested in understanding if Exxon was pumping more money into exploration in order to keep their oil fines flowing. So we see a bit of an uptick. This was from a slide in their 10K and gives us a better understanding of their earnings by business segment, which shows that slightly over 50% comes from their upstream operation and then downstream is about a quarter, followed by chemical. Okay, number two of six are earnings growing. Let's look at Exxon's net income trending over time and compare that to Shell's. So looking at Exxon's net income, in 2016 they were at $7.8 billion, which was a 51% decrease relative to 2015. In 2017 they had $19.7 billion, which is a 151% increase over 2016. In 2018, they had $20.8 billion of net income, which was a 5.7% increase over 2017, and their 2020 estimate is for $3.44 billion. For Shell in 2016, they had $4.6 billion, which was 136% greater than 2015. In 2017, they had $13 billion in net income, which was 184% greater than 2016. In 2018, they had $23 billion in revenue, which was 80% greater than 2017, and their 2020 estimate is for $5.2 billion. So, earnings are fairly volatile, which makes sense given oil prices. Speaking for Exxon, the key drivers that impact earnings are oil prices, fuel margins, the amount of downtime and maintenance they have, and how much they are investing into growth. Of course, we have their dividend as well. So, oil prices affect their earnings potential. If oil goes up another $20 a barrel, I imagine their earnings could double. Now, Macrotrends has a great tool that shows the price of oil prices per barrel back to 1946 and is updated hourly. It also lets you chart against a slew of things such as how it did when various presidents were in office or based on who the Fed chair was, etc. I'll put a link in my description below if you would like to go check it out. So, here we see oil prices over time. And then you can do things like, let's see who the 
various presidents were. So if you want to see Donald Trump, how has oil fared versus Obama versus George W. So that's a really neat tool you can use. You can look at who the Fed chair was. So Jerome Powell, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, Alan Greenspan. And you can also chart things by recessions. Okay, on to number three of six is equity grown. Here we see that both Exxon and Shell have been increasing shareholder equity over the last decade, which I like seeing. By the way, the scale here was just a minor fine grain for Exxon due to a bug in macro trends, so their actual trends aren't that different. Okay, let's move on. So, number four of six is cash flow growing. To answer the question, is a company growing? Watch my previous videos if you want to dig deeper into the various cash flow nuances. Shell has a lot more free cash flow than Exxon. Relatively speaking, low oil prices can negatively impact free cash flow. Weaker than normal refining margins can also hurt. At today's oil and gas prices, their free cash flow could yield some problems covering their dividend, but their strong balance sheet should cover them. I have some concerns about free cash flow dipping too much depending on how much Exxon pushes for growth. These slides from a recent investor presentation highlights Exxon management thoughts on their cash flow potential with a belief that they could nearly double cash flow by 2025, assuming oil remains flat relative to 2017. And then they could use this extra cash flow to further reduce their debt, do buybacks, and grow their dividend, as well as pursue good accretive investments. Now, I never like to put too much weight into what a company believes they can do, but I do like to hear their estimates and then see how they perform. Okay, now let's move on to number five of six, is the dividend growing? Here we see that both their stocks are down relative to where they were a year ago. Exxon's PE on time of filming is 21.3 compared to Shell at 12.02, so a big edge to Shell. Shell has a great forward PE at 10.09 compared to Exxon's 17.54. Shell's dividend is $3.76 per share compared to Exxon's $3.28. That makes Shell's dividend yield 6.25% versus Exxon at 4.49% on the day I'm doing this. Both are nice yields, with shells looking really nice. But even more important is their 10-year dividend compound growth rate. Shell is only at 4.1% per guru focus, as compared to Exxon, which is at 8.4%, which is around what I like for my dividend portfolio. By the way, I was asked to do a video on compound growth rate to help explain why it is so crucial that dividend investors understand it and utilize it, so I'll work on that. Anyway. We see that Shell's 10-year yield on cost is only at 6.82% as compared to Exxon, which is at 7.6%. And then Shell's 20-year yield on cost is 13.96% versus Exxon at 22.52%. And then we come to the biggie. Shell has been going flat for the last few years, not increasing their dividend, whereas Exxon has raised their dividend consecutively for around 37 years through multiple rural recessions and oil recessions. And that, to me, is huge. Exxon has been growing their dividend during multiple industry downturns, while Shell and others like BP had to freeze their dividends, which I hate seeing. Both payout ratios are higher than I want to see, with Shell at 74% and Exxon at 80%. That being said, volatile oil prices can really impact payout ratios. They can go higher than 100% when oil prices are weak, like in 2016. And conversely, it can also go low when oil prices are high, like when it dropped to around 25% in 2011. So with a drop in earnings and low oil prices, I think the payout ratio this year will be quite high. But it looks like they can cover the dividend with their balance sheet. Next year the forecasts look better, so we should be able to get back into safe payout ranges again in the 70s. But the dividend safety is something you want to dig into, because there are some risks here. There's a good video that Sure Dividend did recently about the safety of the Exxon dividend that I recommend you watch before investing. Okay, let's look at what's going on with share buybacks. So we see that Exxon has reduced their shares outstanding by 32% over the last 13 years. But it looks like Shell has been issuing their shares out there and went from 3.34 billion to 4.03 billion shares, an increase of 21%. But they just announced the start of a share buyback program in mid-2018. Their intention is to buy at least 25 billion of its shares by the end of 2020, subject to further progress with debt reduction and oil price conditions. And speaking of shareholder metrics, 
This slide from their investor presentation highlights visually why I love Exxon and Chevron compared to BP, Shell, and Total. Look at the annual dividend growth rate. The two dividend aristocrats crush their competition here. So finally, number six of six, is the stock price growing? To help us answer the question, is a company growing? Let's look at total returns of Exxon compared to Shell and the S&P 500 using Dividend Channel's total returns drip calculator. This models what would have happened if you invested 10K around 15 years ago. We see that Exxon has the worst total performance with 10K ending at around 18K for a total return of 79% versus Shell taking you to 20K, which is a 102% return, and both fared worse than SPY, which ends at 33K, which is a 230% total return. Oil has had it rough for a while, that's for sure. Okay, now into the next item I like to look at when I'm analyzing a business. So, number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It's important to compare ratios in the same industry due to fluctuations in what is normal. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter-term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter-term debt. So the higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3%. Here we see that Exxon is at 0.74 versus their industry median of 1.21, and they are ranked lower than 90% of their competitors. Shell is at 1.15 versus the same industry median of 1.21, and they are ranked lower than 57% of their competitors. So Shell looks better, but neither are where I'd like to see them. And like I always say, double check all numbers and chat with smarter people than me when you're investing. Number three, the next main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it is taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it is smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. I like to see between one to 1.5. A high debt to equity ratio is often associated with high risk as it often means a business is pushing for fast growth with debt. That being said, the appropriate debt-to-equity ratio varies depending on the industry because some industries use more debt financing than others. Capital-intensive industries often have higher ratios. Here we see that Exxon's debt-to-equity is 0.1 versus its industry median of 0.48, which ranks it higher than 51% of its competitors. Shell's debt-to-equity is 0.4 versus the same industry median of 0.48, which ranks higher than 75% of its competitors. So they are both within reasonable ranges. Watch my previous videos to understand the nuances of negative debt-to-equity. Remember, debt-to-equity is total liabilities divided by total equity. Okay, let's see if we think that they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT is at a reasonable level. Looking at their latest EBITs on macro trends, we see that Exxon's EBIT is at $26.9 billion and Shell's EBIT is at $35.1 billion. I normally like to see EBIT greater than or equal to three times net interest. Looking at Exxon's income statement, we find that their trailing 12-month interest is at $812 million, so we see that they are easily covered. Looking at Shell's income statement, we find that their trailing interest is at $3.4 billion, so they are also covered. Okay, the number four final made item I like to look at when analyzing a business is to understand their profitability. Let's look at return on equity, or their earnings power. Normally, I expect to see 10-15% to 15 to cover the cost of capital and make money for shareholders, but the more the better. ROE is sometimes called the mother of all ratios for the reason that it helps us gauge a company's efficiency by looking at both its income statement and balance sheet. ROE tells us how much profit a company makes for every dollar it has in shareholders' equity. Here we see that Exxon's ROA is 8.95% versus an industry median 7.91%, so doing better than 53% of the industry. We see that Shell's ROA is better at 10.34% versus the same industry median and is doing better than 59% of the industry. So a nod to Shell here. Please watch my AbbVie video if you want a more detailed explanation as to how an ROE can be negative and how that can be good or bad and why. Also, when you see high ROEs around 100%, you might think that the company is super profitable. What it usually means is that the company is doing more buybacks and its treasury stock is going higher which reduces the amount of equity on the balance sheet, which can help inflate a company's ROE. So ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders' equity, also known as book value. In some industries, it isn't as useful to use ROE. 
Let's look at return on assets, ROA, as a measure of profitability. ROA will tell us how efficiently a company is squeezing profit from their assets. Return on assets is a measure of how well a company takes all the money it has and uses that to make more money. It's a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. Here we see that Exxon's ROA is 5% compared to Shell's at 5.07%, and the industry median is 3.3%. So Exxon and Shell are virtually the same, and both are outperforming the industry. Okay, the next profitability metric we will look at is net margin. I like the net profit margin because it's a decent metric in just a single figure to gauge how effectively management is running the business. Net profit margins vary depending on the type of industry you're in. Low margin businesses are things like grocery stores or airlines, and they are often under 3%. Solid net profit margins can mean a stronger company that is able to survive hard times. Here we see Exxon's net margin at 6.3% versus Shell's at 5.51% versus the industry's at 4.37%. Exxon is ranked higher than 64% of its competitors versus Shell at 59% of its competitors, so the edge to Exxon, which is doing better than most. Okay, let's move from their financials to community involvement, charitable giving, and to their environmental, social, and governance work, along with any special entities they might support. Exxon has made a strong commitment to charitable giving. In 2018, Exxon and its employees, retirees, and businesses gave $211 million worldwide to organizations like the YMCA, the Girl Scouts, the Alaska Native Justice Center, Habitat for Humanity, the Salvation Army, the United Negro College Fund, the Hispanic Scholarship Fund, the American Indian College Fund, the American Cancer Society, the March of Dimes, the Special Olympics, and a slew of others. More than 15,000 ExxonMobil employees, retirees, and their families donated more than 443,000 volunteer hours in 2018 to almost 3,600 charitable organizations in 33 countries. That's just plain awesome. I think the media only talks about when things go wrong with massive companies like ExxonMobil, so I think it's important to balance that out and share some of the positive things that they and their employees and retirees are doing for society, beyond providing 71,000 jobs. Speaking of those 71,000 employees, I found this in their 10K, which shows that they have 160 nationalities represented in their workforce and have 2,200 PhDs employed and a 30-year average service of career employees. That's incredible, and to me speaks to that they treat their employees well. Beyond the people side, Exxon has also targeted a 2020 goal of reducing their global methane emissions by 15%. Okay, let's move on to their executive leadership team. The average tenure across their most senior execs averages 34 years, which is amazing. Those guys really know everything there is to know about their company. Their CEO is Darren Woods, a 27-year employee to Exxon. He has been CEO since January of 2017. He joined the company in 1992 as a planning analyst. Can you believe that? He started as an analyst and worked his way up through a bunch of roles until he landed the top gig. I love seeing companies that promote from within like that. It just goes to show you that you can make it up to the very top of the ranks if that's your goal, just like you can become a multimillionaire if that's what you want to achieve. Okay, one way we can assess the CEO is on how his stock has done since he has taken office. Here we see Exxon in black, Spy in blue, and Shell in purple. What we see is that Exxon has underperformed relative to Spy and Shell. Spy has performed the best here. As you may be aware, some parts of the oil industry have been hit hard in the last few years. But I see that as an opportunity. Okay, let's jump into concerns and risks. There are a variety of risks you need to be aware of that can impact a company like Exxon, and I'll cover some of them. A big risk to be aware of are volatile oil and gas and other commodity prices. Significant worldwide events can also impact oil prices. We can see how events like the Arab oil embargo in the 70s drove up oil prices. When OPEC cuts quotas, it tends to spike prices. When the global financial crisis hit, oil was crushed. So a variety of external factors can influence how Exxon does. The demand for energy and petrochemicals is usually tied to broad-based economic activities and levels of prosperity. So recessions and the like can have a significant negative impact on a company like Exxon. Aspects of the oil industry are cyclical, so you need to be able to ride the wave and be comfortable doing that. 
So what I often see is that there can be a sudden drop in oil prices, and then oil companies are impacted. And if you want to invest in oil, I recommend you come to terms with that reality. For example, when shale oil came along, things were trending along nicely, and then whammo, it falls for a while. Safety is always a tantamount focus for big oil, and if a huge accident happens with a loss of life, then first it would be terrible for those involved, and then it could lead to costly, but probably appropriate, changes to oil operations. Another concern is the environment. For example, oil spills. The Exxon Valdez oil spill was a disaster that occurred when the Exxon Valdez, an oil tanker owned by Exxon, spilled millions of gallons of crude oil into Alaska's Prince William Sound in 1989. I think it was the worst oil spill in U.S. history until BP's Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010. Of course, these spills usually lead to new regulations being placed on them, which probably makes sense. Litigation is another risk, like in 2018 when ExxonMobil was sued by the state of New York, which claimed the company defrauded shareholders by downplaying the risks of climate change for its businesses. The Carbon Tracker report says none of the largest listed oil and gas companies are making investment decisions that are in line with global climate goals and risk wasting $2.2 trillion by 2030 if governments apply stricter cuts to carbon emissions. Another risk to acknowledge is that extreme weather conditions can impact oil companies. And then, obviously, a large risk is the trend towards renewable and alternative energy, though I already showed you some thoughts on that previously. With the rise in pro-eco legislation and governmental pressure, the oil industry is under increasing legislative risks. Generating electricity from solar power systems and offshore wind is becoming increasingly cheaper and cost-effective. According to IRENA, over 80% of newly commissioned renewable energy will be cheaper than new oil and natural gas. So big oil will probably need to adapt to remain financially viable in the very long run. Also, as the transportation industry evolves with the rise of electric vehicles, oil companies will also need to evolve to flourish. So that's a risk. One risk is depleting oil supplies around the world, though we still have massive reserves of oil and can operate for a very long time. According to BP's Statistical Review of World Energy, global oil reserves at the end of 2012 were 1.7 trillion barrels. Given that the world consumes about 86 million barrels of crude oil per day, it would be possible to conclude that we'll run out of oil in 55 years or sooner if we increase production consumption. But beyond those already attained reserves are massive oil fields that haven't been tapped due to cost reasons, and as technology improves and as the need for oil continues, then we effectively have more than we could consume probably during my lifetime. There's been a cry the big oil's days were over decades ago, yet the need for oil in our global supply chain only continues, as does our ability to find oil in new and deeper places in the earth, as does our efficiency to extract. They also face cybersecurity threats, which can impact their supply chain, sales, brand, and maybe even safety of the personnel. Finally, Exxon faces competitive threats from companies like Chevron, BP, Royal Dutch Shell, etc., which are looking to outperform them, get better talent, acquire better assets, and make better deals. So big question, is it worth buying at today's price? I wanted to mention that analyzing and valuing a business is both an art and a science. The science are the metrics and trends and processes and such. I could utilize even more science and do things like weight and rate each of the various things I talk about, from risks to management to financials to strategies, etc. But I feel I use an appropriate amount of science and get a good enough handle on my companies that I don't need to do that. The art aspect of analyzing a business for me is then taking all this scientific information and coming up with a determination on what I'm going to do and at what price point. Ultimately, you need to figure out what process you want to use, and then if it's successful, keep using it. If it's not successful, then evolve. Okay, let's take a gander at the DCF calculator on Guru Focus to see what it estimates for Exxon and Shell, recognizing that this is just a guesstimate. Obviously, it is better to do a full DCF on your own. If you would like me to do a video on how to do a full DCF, then drop me a note down below or on Instagram. So using this DCF calculator, we see that Exxon has a fair value of $44.40 versus its stock price of $69.60, which is a minus 56.7% margin of safety, i.e. it's overpriced. This says Shell's DCF fair value is $53.50 versus a stock price of $58.60, which gives it a minus 9.6% margin of safety, thus it is also overpriced. So if you were just using these calculators, you would say that Shell is a better value, but both are too pricey. And remember, you can go to the calculator and change the default assumptions to see how the fair value is impacted. 
Okay, let's take a look at their PEs. Watch my previous videos to learn some nuance about PEs and what I expect to see in different industries. Here we see that Exxon's PE is at 14.46, higher than the industry median of 11.84. Its forward PE is 17.54. Shell is at 11.72 with a nice forward PE of 10.09 and better than the industry median of 11.84. So Shell is looking better here. Remember that the average PE across the S&P 500 is around a 22. Watch my AVI video if you want to learn more about the S&P 500 PE ratios. Now that being said, EV to EBITDA is sometimes considered a better metric to use than PE per oil analyst. It's a lot less volatile than PE. It's the enterprise value divided by EBITDA and is sometimes used as a metric to measure the value of a company, especially those in the oil industry. Why use enterprise value? Well, energy companies tend to have high debt loads, and enterprise value includes the cost of paying this down, as opposed to just market capitalization taken on its own. Guru Focus says that today Exxon is at a 7.77 and Shell's at a 5.24. Exxon is ranked lower than 63% of its competitors, compared to Shell, which is ranked higher than 63% of them. At 5 to 7 EV to EBITDA, they both look like good values. The enterprise value to EBITDA ratio varies by industry. However, the EV to EBITDA for the S&P 500 has typically averaged 11 to 14 over the last few years. As a general guideline, an EV to EBITDA value below 10 is usually seen as a healthy and above average metric. Okay, another final trend that you might want to look at is how their dividend yield has trended over time as an input into your buying decisions. Here are the last 10 years of dividend yield trends for Exxon and Shell. They both have great yields. Exxon's is around 5% and Shell's is around 6.5%. Remember, yield is their annual dividend they pay divided by share price. So if this line is flat, then it's one indicator that its relative value has stayed flat when looking at this metric in isolation. If the line trends downhill, then it probably indicates that it is getting pricier. And if it trends up, then it indicates that it's potentially becoming more of a value play worth considering. It will have a tendency to trend up if they increase their annual dividend payout or if the share price goes down. It will trend down if the share prices go up relative to the dividend payout. So the ideal is to buy the yield when it's high and then see the line trend down because the share price is going up after you buy it. Of course, if the share price goes down, then your drip can buy more shares. So between the share price and annual dividend changes, the relative value of Exxon has been steadily improving. Shell's a little bit more flat, but still has a better starting yield than Exxon. Let's look at what the analysts at MarketBeat said about Exxon and Shell. We see that Exxon's consensus rating is a hold versus its consensus rating six months ago, which was also a hold. Exxon's share price today is $69.60, and its consensus price target today is $78.95. Its consensus price target six months ago was $84.65. Shell's consensus rating today is a hold versus its consensus rating six months ago, which was also a hold. Its share price today is around $58.64, and its consensus price target today is $60 versus a consensus price target six months ago of $83.50. So we see that the professionals believe that there's a decent amount of upside potential for Exxon. We also see that they have fairly significantly cut their price target on Shell, which only has a bit of upside to it. Let's look at insider trading. So, as is fairly common, we see a lot of sales, which I'm not fond of seeing. Now, there are two other market signals that are worth understanding if you want to invest in oil companies, as they can sometimes give you some insights into the market. The first is the Baker Hughes rig count, which I'll put their link in my description below. Rigs are what they use to get oil from the earth and the count is how many are active in the U.S. and Canada. So the more confidence industry insiders have in the industry, the more they invest to grow rig count, which leads to more supply, which can also impact prices. So it's not a black and white metric, but it's still useful to know. Another metric you could look at for oil companies is the crack spread, which is the delta in price between a barrel of oil and the products that are refined from it. It's kind of like a gross processing margin. It's called crack, as the term for breaking apart oil into its smaller products like gases, fuel, etc. The crack spread can act as a useful market signal on potential price moves of oil and its related products. If the crack spread widens a ton, 
it means the price of refined products is going up faster than the price of oil, which investors then often see as a sign that oil prices will eventually rise to bring the spread back from its normal historical ranges. Conversely, if the spread is too small, then that might mean that refiners like Exxon will need to slow production to trim back on supply for a while. So what's a good price? For me, Exxon is a buy around $75, which is around where I got in. That being said, given my current asset allocation and risk tolerance and such, I would need to see a significant dip for me to throw some more cash at it, like maybe into the 50s. Oil is one of the riskiest plays in my portfolio, so I limit my exposure accordingly. As of now, I'm content to just grow my position naturally with the drip. Bottom line for me, and I think it should be for most, is you are taking a bet on what happens in the next 20 years. Does oil get crushed due to things like electric vehicles and equivalent energy transformations, or doesn't it? Disruption can happen faster than you can imagine. If you can't stomach that risk, I wouldn't invest. If you can, then it's something to evaluate more. If you are younger and are focused more on growing your wealth, then a company like Exxon might not be the best fit for you. If you are in more of a capital preservation and income phase, it might be worth more considering. You need to ask yourself, after digging deeper into the data, if you think the world becoming more industrialized will support increased oil and gas demand for at least two decades to come. Buffett once said, one of the lessons your management has learned, and unfortunately sometimes relearned, is the importance of being in businesses where tailwinds prevail rather than headwinds. This quote should cause you to consider if you believe in oil's risk-reward play before investing. The risk here is that I see headwinds for oil. Speaking of our main man, Buffett actually sold out of his multi-billion dollar ExxonMobil position back in 2015 because he thought he might have other uses for the money. Though he also said ExxonMobil is a wonderful company and has been one of the greatest investments of all time. I believe Buffett sold out at around $85. Personally, I think Exxon's various investment plans for growth are some of the best I've seen, and so these prices in the stock are awesome to see if you're an investor who is okay with the various concerns and risks weighed relative to the upside. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on Exxon? Are you going to buy, hold, or sell? As always, this video is not a recommendation to buy. I'm just sharing my thoughts as someone who isn't a professional licensed wealth manager or investor. So any decisions or actions you take or don't take are your own responsibility, and you can't hold me liable for them. Don't rely on this research to be accurate. Anything anyone tells you on YouTube usually merits deeper research on your own using multiple other resources. Finally, I want to do a shout out to the Gen X Best of the Best Community Partners list. So thank yous go out to All Good, Bob Wright, Daryl Ricca, Karen Outwood, Adventures in Us Investing in Fire Movement, No Debt But Love, Jerry Mestayer, Maximino Alvarez, Ryan Giffen, Gengo Senman, Dividends with Alisher, David Rogers, Andy, Ivan GC33, Batista Rocks, Alex Gulian, and Maria Davila. I apologize if I mispronounced anyone's name or missed anyone. I just want to say thank you so much for being such engaged partners in this community. Finally, if you watched the whole video to this point, then please comment down below and include hashtag partner in your comment so I can know who my superstar partners are out there as I start my YouTube channel up. And if you really want to shine in my eyes, then also include a number by the hashtag, the number being how many of my videos you have watched from beginning to end and that you have commented on. So with this video, I'm hashtag partner 17 because I've watched all my videos from start to end. You can also watch and comment on my previously released videos if you want to increase your partner number up to show me how supportive you are. All right, let's jump in my portfolio where I'm showing the bottom 12 stocks by portfolio value, which means I have an additional 13 to go after this. Let's take a look at how the allocation looks with Exxon in there. So we see that energy is at 22%, industrials are at 21.8%, uh, consumer staples, consumer packaged goods are at 11.7%, healthcare 15.3%, retails at 12.8%, financials at 12.1%, and entertainment at 4.1%. So getting more and more interesting. Alright, so I have 823.8 shares of Exxon, 
you can see that in the last 365 days it has trended down. Current PE 21.3, forward PE a nice 15.27. TDM says 37.29. It's in the energy industry. Annual dividends $3.48. The next pay date will be in December. Has a current yield of about 4.76 on the day I'm filming. We see the three-year dividend compound growth rate is at 3.9%, the five years at 5.2%, and the 10 years at 8.4%, which is nice. And manually, I calculated a five-year of 5.41% for the dividend compound growth rate. We see that the average weighted five-year dividend compound growth rate for my portfolio is 10.57%. And we see I have $60,209 of Exxon. That brings the portfolio up to $366,214. Exxon drips $2,867 a year, which is cumulative for the portfolio so far at $12,300 a year. Decent payout, a little bit high of a payout ratio. And we see, I actually found more dividend data, but, and they have 37 years of consecutive years of increasing their dividend with no cuts. We see that the average weighted years of increasing dividends for the portfolio is now 30.93 years. It's an aristocrat, 0.97 beta, so the average weighted beta for the portfolio is 0.99. So under one, which is good. Market cap, 309 billion. Average weighted market cap for the portfolio, 139.4 billion. Now we can jump into the dividends. First, some news that just came out since my last video. AbbVie announced that they're increasing their dividend by 10.3%. So their quarterly dividend will go from $1.07 per quarter to $1.18 per quarter. That means they're increasing it from $4.28 per share per year to $4.72 per share per year. I have 473.8 shares of AbbVie, which means that my passive income just increased from $2,028 a year to $2,236 a year, which means this increase they did just increased my passive income by $208 a year. How amazing is that? When is the last time you got a raise of over 10% for doing anything? Heck, when's the last time you got a 10% raise for doing an awesome job at work? And that's the power of dividend investing. Now let's jump into my Exxon dividends I recently received. I have Exxon in both a tax-sheltered account and in a taxable account, so I got two emails from E-Trade showing dividends I received. I also edited out some dividends from these screenshots from companies I haven't revealed to you yet, but left Chevron in there since I have revealed them. So in September, I received a total of $708.18 of Exxon dividends. Since I've turned on my drip for Exxon, it bought another 9.8 shares of itself, taking me from 814 shares to about 824 shares. So this dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $34 a quarter, or about $136 a year. It will actually be more than that because it is compound quarterly, and then even more because they'll raise their dividend each year. Thus, you can easily infer that each year that I hold Exxon in my brokerage, it will increase my overall portfolio's passive income by over $136 cumulatively every year, which should also continuously increase as it compounds itself and as they increase their dividend. So if we look at the copy of my spreadsheet, where I have deleted a bunch of rows of positions I haven't revealed, we can see that on September 10th, I got my... Exxon dividend checks. And so for the positions I've shown in Travelers, Goldman Sachs, etc., in September I received $1,463.83. And then if we look at my Q3, here we can see what I received in the, in the uh, positions I've revealed for July, August, and September. Okay. Thanks, everybody.
See you in the next video. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double-checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video, and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, share this video with others, and comment below.